are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. All right, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, please. most important thing that ever happened to me in my life was when I trusted Christ as an 11-year-old boy. I didn't really understand the plan of salvation. I could not have explained it the night I was saved. And I've had people say, well, if you didn't understand it, you were not saved. But you're not saved by understanding something. You're saved by standing on someone. And then for years I went through life, sort of an animated question mark up one day and down the next. Often wondered if I was saved, and I think a lot of preaching led me to doubt my salvation. Someone gets saved in a service and shout, and I'm not against that, but they'd carry on. And the preacher would say, boy, he really got saved. As a little boy, I'd think to myself, I, I must have not really got saved when I was a child, because I didn't act like that. But through the years, I learned that you can't tell with a honk of the horn how much gas is in the tank. A lot of folks are like the lady up in West Virginia. Car stopped, she couldn't get it started. We stopped to help her, and the man with me checked everything under the hood. Couldn't find anything wrong with it, and finally said, slip over and let me see if I can start it. I can't find anything wrong with the car. He went to start the car, and the thing didn't start, and he looked down and was out of gas. He said, there ain't not a thing wrong with this car except it's out of gas. She said, well, it hurt it to drive it on home this way. <laughs> but I doubted my salvation at times because I based my assurance on my feelings not realizing that my feelings would change. For feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My word is the word of God and all else is worth believing. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever, for though all earth should pass away, his word abides forever. And finally, I came across 1 John 5:13 and learned the basis of assurance is not my feelings or not even my experience, or my ability to remember the day I trusted Christ. I've heard men say, if you don't remember the day and hour you got saved, then you're not saved. In that case, I'm not saved because I don't know the day nor the hour. When I got saved, I was an 11-year-old boy. I didn't have a watch. God knows I paid no attention to calendars. It could have been June or July. I don't know what month it was. I do know it was night. I was in the bed late one night. That's all I can tell you. I prayed and trusted Christ. But my assurance is not based on my ability to rem remember. If it was, I'd, I'd lose it occasionally now. Because I'm almost like the guy who went to the doctor and said, Doc, I'm having trouble remembering things. He said, well, sit down and tell me about it. He said, tell you about what? I 
I envy folks who can remember the day and hour and give all the details surrounding their conversion. I, I don't remember the day and hour. But I'm not saved and have assurance because I have a good memory, I have good feelings. I'm saved because the Bible says so, and I believe the Bible. I've learned not to let my feelings have anything to do with it. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. says, I feel good, but I don't know I'm saved because I feel good. I know I'm saved because the Bible says so, and I feel good because I know I'm saved. Saved, first thing, getting assurance, the second thing. And then later in life, I, I read a book. I think I've been preaching maybe five, six years. Went in the bookstore one day, and I saw a book, and uh, it was my habit to look through the table of contents of a book and see if it interested me. And the book I picked up was entitled Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians by J. Gilchrist Lawson, published by Warner Press, been years ago. I thumbed to the table of contents, and I recognized the name of some of the people, like D.L. Moody, with some of the men I'd never heard of, Savonarola, some I'd never heard of. Peter Cartwright, I'd heard of him. And as I thumbed through that, I thought, I'd like to read this, because I had reached a place in life where I was hungry as a preacher. I was thirsting. And I longed for, for something. I didn't know what it was exactly. I, I'd never been taught. But I longed to be more than just another preacher on the side of the road. And I thought, I'll read about these deeper experiences of famous Christians, so I took the book home and read it. And the book was, as the title had uh, exclaimed, it was Experiences of Famous Christians. And uh, I learned two things in the book. Number one, I learned that nobody's experience is the principle. And just because it happened to somebody else a certain way doesn't mean you'll have that exact same experience. And the book did two things for me. It gave me a hunger or a thirst for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But it also confused me about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the hunger came and I was thirsty and I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I read where one man called it the uh, complete sanctification. Another guy called it the second blessing. Another guy called it the narrow way within the way. Another fellow calls it the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Another fellow called it the filling of the Holy Spirit. Another fellow called it the surrendered life. And since then, I've read where one fellow said, we argue over the correct expression and die for a lack of the experience. Uncle Buddy Robinson talked about the second blessing, the second blessing, the second blessing. One day a fellow walked up to him and said, Uncle Bud, you keep talking about the second blessing. I've had a hundred blessings. I've had several hundred blessings. I've had thousands of blessings. And Uncle Bud, with his tongue-tied way of speaking, said, If you've had that many, you wouldn't mind if old Buddy had two, would you? Uncle Bud went to see his doctor one day. He's hard of hearing in one ear. The doctor examined him and said, Buddy, it's not a thing in the world but old age. And Buddy said, I don't understand it. He said, you say it's old age, and he said, both ears are born at the same time. 
little girl saw him one day, and he had a brown beard, and his hair was sort of gray. And she said, Uncle Bud, why is your beard sort of brownish red, and your hair is a gray? Well, he said, nobody ever asked me that before. But he said, I guess it's because the hair on my head is about 20 years older than the hair on my feet. He said. I never would have thought of that. I... I even went to conferences and I heard sermons on the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But most sermons I heard was only somebody's experience. And they'll tell what they did and how they knelt and how they prayed and how long they prayed and so on. And I leave the conference again with a hunger and thirst for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but I... I had no directions about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So one day, finally, I, I came across some things that helped me. And I want to share with you tonight some thoughts that I wish someone had given me earlier in my life as I speak tonight on the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, the Bible says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Three thoughts tonight. Number one, I'll talk about the comparison, very briefly. Three times in the Bible, a spirit-filled man is compared to a drunk man, or is used in the same verse with a drunk man. Now, since I believe that all scriptures give inspiration of God, I do not think that is an accident. In our text, it says, Be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of John the Baptist, the Bible said, He shall neither drink wine nor strong drink, but shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Verse 16 adds, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, Peter said, These are not drunk, as ye suppose, seeing it's the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken of of the prophet Joel. In the last day, saith the Lord, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And so on. Three times, drunk man, spirit-filled man, same verse. In a way, they are alike, and that both of them are controlled by another power. I have visited a home and have the man of the home who had been drinking say things he shouldn't have said. And the sweet Christian wife apologized for the husband and say, Now, preacher, I hope you'll come back. Uh, you haven't really met my husband. Said, That's not my husband talking. That's that old liquor talking. If he wasn't drunk, he wouldn't do that. He's a nice man when he's not drunk. And, and she's probably right about that. He probably said some things when he was drinking. He wouldn't say when he's sober. I know I had an uncle who said some things when he was drinking. He wouldn't say when he was sober. Uncle Charlie, I shouldn't tell you who he is. But he uh, came by as a little boy. He wanted to take me to ride in his new Pontiac. So we went down Georgia 12 Highway before the days of interstate highways. And rushing along Georgia 12 Highway as, as fast as that little Pontiac would go. And through the town of Conyers and the police began to chase us and stop us. I was a kid. I didn't know any better. I was just having a good time. Police pulled him over and uh, said, you going to a fire? And he said, no. And he asked for his license. He gave him to him. He gave him a ticket. And Charlie was drunk. 
When the police gave him a ticket, he said, now, that'll be so many dollars. I think maybe he said ten dollars. You can pay me now, or you can go back to court later, or you can pay them later. But you can pay me, and I'll have to come back. And Charlie had him a twenty-dollar bill. He started giving him ten back. He said, just keep the other ten. I'm coming back through here in a few minutes. Now, I don't want to be stopped when I come back through, he said. And then he got locked up for being drunk. Now, I'm sure if he hadn't been drunk, he wouldn't have made such a bold remark. Men say things when they're under the influence of liquor they would not say when they're sober. It gives them a boldness that they don't have when they're not full of liquor. I used to work at Georgia 12 uh, Station, Fire Station, DeKalb County Station 12. And we had a big engine driver named Glenn. We were sitting around there one day, not much to do. The engine had been washed and the place was cleaned up. And a drunk came in. And uh, they're always funny to me. It's pathetic, but I can't help but laugh at them sometimes. And his drunk was asking what everybody's name was. He said, what's your name? I figured it don't make any difference. I tell him, so I told him my name. He, he wrote it down on a piece of paper. He'd ask my address or phone number. It's one of my name. And so I figured that's all right. I can't do any harm. He asked everybody in there, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Came to Glenn, a big engine driver, said, what's your name? He said, Glenn. He wrote his name down, so Glenn had second thoughts. He said, what do you want our names for? And that drunk, without blinking an eye, just blurted out, I'm writing down everybody's name and I'm on a whip. And when I get my list made, I'm going to beat the daylights out of every one of them. And old Glenn, that engine driver, stood up and grabbed that drunk pickup and shook him about two or three seconds till his teeth rattled. Said, I'll have you know now, you're not about to whip me. You understand that, you little runt, you? And he began to shake him. He said, put me down then. Said, I'll just scratch your name off this list. <laughs> That's that old liquor talking. So did a spirit-filled man. A spirit-filled man attempts things he wouldn't attempt if he wasn't spirit-filled. He'll take steps of faith he would not take if he wasn't spirit-filled. But you not only have the comparison, number two, you have the command. It is clear as a bell in Ephesians 5.18, here are two commands. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I want you to listen up. There are two commands. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, who has a right to say one of those commands is less important than the other command? If I said to you, how many here would have a deacon on your board that got drunk every Saturday night? Nobody would raise your hand. There's not a preacher here who would allow anybody to sing in his choir if they know they went out and got drunk every Saturday night. There is not a person here who would vote for a man to pastor you a church if you knew the man went out and deliberately got drunk every week of his life. And you'd be right. Because the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess. We're not to get drunk. And we hear sermons against drunkenness. And there are crusades against the liquor traffic, and, and, and rightly so, there should be. But the same Bible that said, be not drunk with wine, where it is excess, also said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll probably shock you when I tell you this, but if it's wrong to get drunk, then it's wrong not to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I'm probably going to shock you again when I tell you it's just as wrong not to be filled with the Holy Spirit as it is to be drunk because the same Bible in the same book in the same chapter and the same verse gives two commands and we have no right to say one command is less important than the other command. And while we would not dare have a preacher who went to the pulpit and got drunk every Saturday night, we must be honest and say, many of us go to the pulpit Sunday after Sunday and know nothing at all of the Spirit-filled life. I'm afraid the charismatics have made such a mess of it that we've steered totally, uh, totally clear of it altogether. And that we are so afraid we may get out on a limb that we don't even bother to climb the tree. But Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And you may as well try to beat back the tide with a pitchfork as to try to do God's work without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an absolute impossibility. Those old men were right when they'd stand and sing, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Their terminology might not have been correct, but the truth they were trying to convey was absolutely correct. We cannot do the work of God without the power of God. It's an absolute impossibility. And yet most of us live and die and know nothing at all about the Spirit filled out. Here is a command, be filled with the Spirit. May I say there is no command in the Bible to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is, there is not a command that says be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is positional, it is automatic. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in to take up His permanent residence. Chapter and verse, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, he has given you the spirit of his son, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Not because you prayed, not because you tarried, not because you fasted, not because you yielded or anything else, but because you are sons. He has given you the spirit of his son. And how did you become a son? John 1, 12, as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The moment I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I became a son of God by faith. Galatians 3.26 says, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I was saved as an 11-year-old boy, and that night, that night, 43 years ago, that night, the Holy Spirit came into me to take up His permanent residence. And the fullness of the Holy Spirit is not to get more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a substance. I think much of our teaching and preaching on the Holy Spirit leads us to have the wrong ideas about the Holy Spirit. I hear such expressions as the third person in the Godhead. As if God is number one and Jesus is number two and the Holy Spirit is number three. Uh, But I might tell you that there's only one God. And the Holy Spirit is not like third under God. It's, it's God the Holy Spirit and God the Son and God the Father. It's not one, two, three like this. They're co-equal. And so somehow we think God's the most important and Jesus is the second most important. The Holy Spirit's the third least important. Or third in the line of importance. And so we don't see him as what he really... Now, now, Jesus does not really live in our heart. We say we have Jesus in our heart, but he really isn't. You got awfully quiet. 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, if the Bible is correct. But what you have, not in your heart, but what you have in you and in your body is the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, What? Know ye not that your heart... No, that's not right. What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, which is in you, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Exactly where in my body the Holy Spirit lives, I do not know. I think we refer to the heart because it's the center of emotions here. And we have our feeling here. But the Holy Spirit lives in the body of every believer. Whether you believe it or not, it still is true. Whether you recognize it as a fact or not, you do not change it. Jesus said, I'll pray to the Father, He will send you another comforter. And when He has come, He will abide with you, how long? Forever. So the night I was saved, 43 years ago, the Holy Spirit, as a person, came in to me to take up His permanent residence, and He will never leave me. He will abide with me, how long? Forever. How long is forever? Forever. Everywhere I have been, since the day I have been saved, the Holy Spirit has been with me inside me. He doesn't leave me. He stays in me 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Now, he's a person. Now, I hear preachers say, if you'll clean your heart out, God will fill you with the Holy Spirit. Two problems. Number one, your heart is not a receptacle. And number two, the Holy Spirit is not a substance like water in a jug. And you don't clean your heart out and make room more for the Holy Spirit, so it pours in a little more. And you clean more of your heart out and it pours in a little more. Two mistakes. Your heart's not a receptacle. Let's suppose a man gets a heart transplant after cleaning his heart out. And God's poured the Holy Spirit in until his heart's overflows with the Holy Spirit. He gets a heart transplant, and now he's got to do all that process over again. Or let's suppose I'm a heart donor. And I die and I take my heart and put it in the bosom of a drunk. Is he going to wake up a Holy Ghost-filled drunk the next morning because he got in my heart? All he's going to have is a muscle that just pumps and pumps and pumps and pumps. You see, when we say, clean your heart out, he'll give you more of the Holy Spirit. We're tearing the Holy Spirit apart in little pieces. He's a person. Just get that straight. He's a person. I don't have time to give you all I want to, but read John 16 and John 14. It says, he, 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 not it, it. Him, 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 not it, it. He's a person. You can't have more of a person than the person. When I got my wife, I got all of her. There's more of her now than there was when I got her, but when I got her... Father, forgive me, for I know not what I'm saying. But when I got her, I got all of her. Suppose I went back to my father-in-law and I got on my knees and said, Mr. Crawford, and I began to pray, Oh, Mr. Crawford! Give me the fullness of Geraldine. Fill me with Geraldine. Oh, Mr. Crawford, fill me with Geraldine. Fill me with Jerry. And I just kept crying. He'd say, son, go home. You'll get your belly full in a few days. Now, when you got the Holy Spirit, you got all the Holy Spirit you'll ever get. He's a person. He lives in the body of every believer, and he will never leave you. There is no command to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's positional. That's automatic. That happened the day you got saved. Number two, there's no command to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is also positional and automatic. 
The moment I trusted Christ as Savior, I was sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Ephesians 1.13, the latter part of the verse says, In whom after you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. And Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you were sealed under the day of redemption. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit the day you got saved. No command to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's positional. That's automatic. That has happened to every believer. I may hasten to say there is no command in the Bible to be baptized with the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. That is also positional and automatic. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Chapter and verse in your Bible, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, it says, Wherefore we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. How many are baptized? All. Whether we be bond or, or free, uh, uh, Jew or Greek, bond or free. Every one of us have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That's positional, that is automatic. The night I trusted Jesus as an 11-year-old boy, the Holy Spirit sealed me. I didn't understand it. I couldn't have explained it that night. I didn't even know it happened that night, but it still happened. He also came in to indwell me that night. He's never left me. I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. I could not have explained that, but it happened. He also baptized me that night into the body of Christ. I became a member of the body of Christ. There is no command to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, or to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Here is a command to believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to whom is this written? Is this addressed to preachers? Yeah, they're included. Is it addressed to missionaries? Yes, they're included. Evangelists? Yes, they are included. But turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and let's see who it is addressed to. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. He's writing to the saints. He's writing to all born-again believers. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is not for a particular group of believers like preachers and evangelists and missionaries, but it's, it's for every born-again child of God. And every child of God is commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The command is as clear as a bell. Here it is. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now a word about the conditions. I heard men preach on the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Heard Dr. Howe's famous sermon on fresh oil. I, hear him tell, I heard him tell how he knelt on his father's grave and how he prayed, and he indicates he does not know how long he prayed. Now, how many hours passed by? But he says, I know something happened to me. When I heard him tell that experience and preach that sermon, my heart longed for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I hungered, I thirst, I left the building and said, oh God, if it's for me, I want it. I don't want to be just another preacher on the side of the road. I don't want to be just a mediocre, run-of-the-mill kind of a preacher. If there's a Spirit-filled life, I want to be a Spirit-filled preacher. I read about D.L. Moody on Wall Street and how he said some ladies had been praying for him. And the power of God came on him in such a fashion that he said, I had to borrow the room of a friend and ask God to stay his power lest I die under the power of the Holy Spirit. I read that. I said, oh, God, I must have a little of that. 
I read about Finney's experience. I read about Savannah Rowe, who sat on his platform in a trance for hours without saying a word. I read about Peter Cartwright's experience and all the others, and my heart hungered as I read that book, and I thirsted, and I wanted it so bad, but I was not willing to say something happened to me that did not happen to me. I was not willing to say that I had some experience I did not have. I longed. I went for months. And finally, I began to get some facts together. And I'll share with you some things that I discovered when reading the Scriptures and studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Number one, the first condition for the fullness of the Holy Spirit is a thirsting, a warning, a, a hunger. John seven thirty seven. that last day, that great day of the feast. Jesus stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his body shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Ghost which was to come. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I have read that D.L. Moody's favorite text in the Old Testament, when preaching on what he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we call the fullness. When preaching from the Old Testament, he had used Isaiah 44, verse 3. And he had read, I will pour waters up on him that is thirsty, and floods upon dry ground. You know why most men are never filled with the Holy Spirit? They do not have a thirsting for it. I believe if you have the attitude, I can take it or leave it, you'll probably leave it. Or if you have the attitude, I'd like to be filled with the Holy Spirit to see what it's all about, and if I like it, I'll keep it. If I don't like it, I'll give it back. You'll never be filled. I think you almost have to come to a place where you're desperate, where you don't want to live without the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to share my experience unless you think experience is the principle, and it's not. But I came to the place after reading so much about the Holy Spirit and hearing sermons on the subject, I came to the place, I, I said, Lord, I had rather have one year to be a Spirit-filled preacher and have an effective ministry and have people saved and baptized and get something done one year of my life and die and go on to heaven than I have 30 or 40 years and have a dry, dead, dusty, empty kind of a ministry. I'd read about those great preachers and I'd look at my little congregation and walk through my community and I'd say, Lord, if it was for Spurgeon's congregation and Finney's congregation and Moody's congregation and Cartwright's congregation and, and Sunday's congregation, Lord, my people deserve a spirit-filled preacher. And I begged and I pled and I did everything I needed. I was hungry and I was thirsty. I mentioned Uncle Buddy Robinson a few minutes ago. Buddy Robinson said, I went to hear this Methodist preacher preach. He said he preached on heaven till I wanted to go there. He said he preached on hell till I thought I was going there. He said when he gave the invitation, I couldn't read my name in boxcar letters. But when I got it from the altar, I could read my title clear to mansions in the sky. He said a few months later, this second blessing, sanctified Presbyterian preacher came through town preaching on the second blessing. Uncle Buddy said, I said I'll have it or die. He meant by that I was so hungry, I, either I was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I preferred to die. Uncle Buddy said, I, I, I threw away my old deck of cards and my pistol. He said, I put my two old mules on the altar, Alex and a hundred. said, I put a bale of hay on the altar. said, I put my Presbyterian mother, my drunken brother on the altar. And God said to me, Bud, there's too much between me and you and the altar. And Uncle Buddy said, Lord, I got to have it. He told how he begged for it. And he finally said, Lord, if you'll give it to me, I'll give every neighbor I've got a jug of molasses. 
He said, I can make the best molasses a man ever wanted his biscuit in. By and by, buddy got what he called the second blessing. He went across the country preaching on the second blessing. He was wrong in his, in his teaching on the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no such thing as a, an annihilation of the old sinful nature, but if it's possible, his was more annihilated than mine. He did go to New York City, and a man showed him all the sights of the city. When Uncle Bud got back to his room that night, he knelt by his bed and said, Dear Lord, I thank you for all the beautiful sights of New York City. But I thank you most of all that I didn't see anything that I wanted. I, I can't say I've been there and didn't see something I wanted. So Uncle Bud more sanctified than I am. But he, he was thirsty. He had a longing. He had a hunger for the footage of the Holy Spirit. Number one, there must be a thirsting. Number two, there must be faith or believing. Same text in Acts and John seven thirty seven. The last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said, "If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink." And then he said, "For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his bed shall flow rivers of living water." There must be faith. You must believe that the Holy Spirit's fullness is for you. You may not, you must not take an idea, well, well, Moody was an exceptional man, and he was. But he's a man like you are, a man of flesh and bone. And, and, and Moody was no hand-picked favorite of God. God is not a partial God. God does not play favorites. God will bless any man who wants to be blessed. And God will use any man who wants to be used. And God will fill any man who wants to be filled if he's serious about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The devil would often say to me, not out loud. I never heard the devil speak out loud. If I did, I'd still be running. I didn't hear God speak out loud. Old Roberts didn't either. He needed oral surgery. Though the negative thought came to my mind, the devil puts thoughts in your mind. That's the way he communicates to you. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias said to Peter, Why has Satan filled thine heart to put it in your mind to lie to the Holy Ghost? Where do you get the idea to lie to the Holy Ghost and lie to God? By the way, the Holy Ghost and God is used synonymous in Acts chapter 5. Satan put that thought in his mind. And Satan put a thought in my mind, Well, Curtis, you've never been to college or seminary. And you're just an old country preacher and, and you'll never amount to anything in life. And nobody knows you, and you're out of nobody's fellowship. Nobody's going to promote you. And after all, Dr. Howells and Dr. Lee Roberts and those guys are just, are just unusual men who have to be the exception. And, the, and you're not that kind of a guy. It's not for you. You can't have this. And he convinced me, and I'd walk through the woods and cry and think, well, I, I wish it was for me. Then I found myself looking to heaven and say, dear God, but if the Bible is true, it is for me. You're not a partial God. You want to feel me the Holy Spirit too. And finally, I kept saying, it's for me, it's for me, it's for me. And I believe with all my heart that God could fill me with the Holy Spirit like he'd fill other great men with the Holy Spirit. Number three, there must not only be a thirsting and a believing, but number three, I think there must be an asking. And I can't give you all the verses. I'll just give you one or two verses. Jesus said in John 14, verse 14, if you shall ask anything... In my name, I'll do it. I suppose that word anything would cover the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Not I might do it, or not I'll do something close to it, but I'll do it. In James 4, 2 is a sad verse. 
It says you have not because you ask not. There must be an asking. Several years ago, Dr. Hines bought a sermon on the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. He talked about praying for power. And he said, I, I had a little, a little verse, I mean, just a little, little sign over my mirror, pray for power. On the sun of my car, pray for power. And on my desk, pray for power. And everywhere I looked, it would say, pray for power. Said, every time I saw the sign, I'd be praying for power. Oh, God, give me the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, fill with the Holy Spirit. As a result of that sermon, I've been in preacher's studies all over America, and I've seen that little sign, pray for power, pray for power, pray for power. It's not a bad idea. I, I, never, I never cease to pray for the Holy Spirit to control me, to use me, to infill me. You see, I, I can walk out here and I can bring me a sermon outline. I have it in my hand. It's something I can hold on to. I can bring me a Bible. I can hold it in my hand. It's something I hold on to. But when I walk out here, I cannot put my hand on the Holy Spirit like the Bible and make sure He's with me. I must travel out here by faith. I must say, Holy Spirit, I know you're in me. I know you long to control me, and I yield the best I know how for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Please control me while I preach. Help me to think what I ought to think and to say what I ought to, think, ought to say as I speak. You can say that and not mean it, but if you mean it, and said, I think God is more anxious by the Holy Spirit to control our lives than we are to be controlled by Him. So I find myself asking all the time. If I'm to make a visit, I'll say, Lord, I don't know what to say to these people. Help me. Sometimes I get a letter uh, that's not always easy to answer. And I, and I find myself saying, Lord, uh, how, would I, how should I answer this letter? Holy Spirit, help me. You know, that's not in Scripture. The Bible talks about uh, having an occasion to give a testimony before people or to answer people who accuse you. And he said, think not what you shall say. I don't premeditate your answer to your accusers. But he said, the Holy Spirit will give you in the same hour what you should say. I'm as sure as I'm standing here, the Holy Spirit has given me answers from my accusers more than once. I'm not talking about added revelation of the Bible. I detest that. But I'm talking about the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is what I mean. Not additional revelation. There's no additional revelation. Nobody gets a revelation from God. The Bible is the revelation. If you understand something, you're not getting a revelation. You're getting illumination on the already given revelation that was penned down by verbal inspiration. But you're not getting revelation. Revelation was closed with the Bible. This is it. The Bible's all God will have to say to us. He doesn't give Tammy Faye Baker a new message or Jim Baker either one. He doesn't give you a new message. This is God's message to us, the Bible. Run from anybody who has additional revelation. There's something wrong with that. Every false religion in the world is built off the Bible plus somebody's additional revelation. Ellen G. White had a vision. Saw the Ten Commandments, the seventh and the fourth one, set up above the other, and started a whole movement called the Seventh-day Adventists. Awful quiet. If she had took an alcohol before she went to bed, never would have been a seventh-day Adventist movement. One guy had an angel lead him out and found a book buried in the ground, started a whole religion on it. The devil only wrote one book and he was ashamed of it and buried it, and that guy had to find it. The Holy Spirit leads us. There must be a thirsting. There must be believing. Number three, there must be asking. 
I think every time you go to the pulpit, it'd be a very wise thing to say, Lord, I'm going out. I'll do my best. Dr. John R. Rice told me, he's sitting with a Dr. Bob Jones, senior on the platform one time. He said, I, he said, I hear Dr. Bob mumbling, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I can't preach about you. I need you. I wonder why Dr. Rice tell me such a thing. But it shows a great man like Dr. Bob Jones, Sr. knew he couldn't do what he had to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. I find myself saying, Lord, I need you every hour. We need you. There must be a thirsting. There must be believing. There must be asking. Let me hasten to say, number four, there must be a yielding, a surrender. It's in James, it's chapter 4, verse 5. For the Scripture says, You think the Scripture saith in vain that the Spirit which dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. When I read that verse, I thought the Holy Spirit who indwells me lusts to envy. I kept reading the verse. You mean the Holy Spirit lusts, and I thought of lust as a, as a, as a, as a carnal, fleshly sort of a thing. But the word lust simply means to have a strong desire. And I kept studying the verse, and finally I paraphrased the verse, and you'll forgive me for my paraphrase. The word dwelleth means to take up permanent residence. The word lust means to have a strong desire. And so I paraphrase it like this. Do you think the Scripture says in vain that the Holy Spirit who has taken up His permanent residence in us has a strong desire even to the point of being envious? But the Holy Spirit is not the only one who has a desire in regards to us. Galatians 5, 17 says something else lust. It says the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, so these two are contrary one to the other. Inside me lives the Holy Spirit, all the Holy Spirit I'll ever have. He will never leave me. But inside me, the Holy Spirit who lives has a strong desire even to the point of being envious. But his desire is contrary to the desire of my flesh. My flesh also has a strong desire to the point of being envious. And his desire is against the Holy Spirit. And so there's a constant battle in my life and I'm in the driver's seat. I am the one who makes the decision whether or not I will yield to the desires of the Holy Spirit or the desires of the flesh. Nobody else makes that choice. I make that choice myself. God does not push the fullness on the Holy Spirit on anyone. We must make our own decision. I must yield. And so you'll pardon a personal experience, but I, I, I knelt on a concrete floor. And then I found myself laying out on that floor in my stomach. And it wasn't a loud sort of a prayer, but it was kind of a prayer just quoting the Scriptures back to God as if He didn't know them. I'm sure He knew them. But I said, Lord, I've been praying for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I've been doing everything I know to do for months, for years. And I said, if I understand the Bible, and here's what I said to God, I said, if I understand the Bible, the Holy Spirit's the person. I quoted God the verses. I said, if I understand the Bible, the person of the Holy Spirit came into me the day I got saved, and I have all of him I'll ever have. And I quoted God the verse. And I said, if I understand the Bible in James 4 or 5, the Holy Spirit has a strong desire, even to the point of being envious. And if I understand the Bible, that desire is against the flesh, Galatians 5, 17, and I'm in the driver's seat. And I begin to see the Holy Spirit as a person indwelling me, having a desire to control me to the point of being envious, and I find myself weeping. 
And I said, I said, dear Holy Spirit, if you want to control me to the point of being envious. And I could visualize that every time I yielded to my flesh, your Holy Spirit was envious. He would say, Curtis, I want to control you. Why did you yield to the flesh? I'm envious. I want that control of your life, not the flesh. Let me have it. Don't let the Holy, don't let the flesh have it. Let me have it. He's envious. And I cried and I said, oh God, if the Holy Spirit wants to feel me so bad that he's envious and I want to be so, feel so bad that I've been praying these weeks and months and maybe a year longer, it seems like we could get together. And I made a simple decision made on a set of facts. And here's my decision. And here's what I said. I said, today, Holy Spirit, I yield for your fullness and control. The only thing that would keep me from doing what you want is that I won't know what it is. In that case, it won't be my fault. It'll be your fault. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be anything. If you give me clear directions, I'm at your disposal. When I was down in my church in 1977, people said, wasn't that a difficult decision? I said, oh, no, easy decision. All 8,000 members had joined while I was a pastor. Everybody came in under my leadership. We had 470 students, I think, in BUA at that time, 150-something preacher boys. All attending my class on Wednesday. All attending my church. Preacher after preacher said, you have what everybody's trying to get. Why would you resign that church and that school and leave it all when that's what people are trying to get? And you walk out and leave all of it. Wasn't that a hard decision? I said, no, that was an easy decision. It was an easy decision because I had made the hard decision Back yonder in the 60s, when on my face I said, Holy Spirit, I'll do anything you want. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll be anything you want me to be. I'll say anything you want me to say. You give good, clear orders, and I'll follow the directions. Now, I'm not trying to be pious, but I meant what I said when I prayed that prayer. I do not claim that I've always obeyed the Holy Spirit 100% of the time. As a matter of fact, I'm certain I haven't. I can name times I've rebelled against his leadership and had him say to me almost, not an audible voice, but something inside check me and say, what about that time you told me that you do what I said? And many times I've even disobeyed him when I knew I was disobeying, and so have you. And I grieved him. I made that decision. I did not see any lights flash. I did not feel any cold chills go up my back and my hair didn't stand on ends. If your hair standing on the ends is a requirement for the fullness, I can't have about a half fullness. You couldn't get any. You're about gone. I thought I was bad. Looks like your neck's blowing a bubble. I meant that. Now, I don't like to give experience, but I'm going to tell you what happened. Just a, a confident feeling came that I'd made a good decision, a right decision. A feeling that I had the train on the track and we were headed toward the destination. We had not reached there, but we were moving. And I think what happens is many men make the decision I'm talking about, and because they don't see the great results they expect within the next three months, or six months, or a year, they kind of decide, well, there wasn't anything to that decision I made, and it wasn't real, and so they back off on it. And the devil often gave me and said, well, what about that experience? What about that yielding for the fullness? I don't see anything happening. And many times I wanted to back off of that kind of surrender and say, well, it's not working for me, but I concluded this. If I back off now, I won't ever know. 
The only way I can find out is faith surrendered till I die. Then face God after being surrendered 30 years or 40 years and say, Okay, God, I was surrendered 40 years. You never use me. And the Bible's not true and you are a partial God. But you'll never back God in the corner. And gradually things begin to happen. More people begin to get saved and the church begin to grow. An invitation begin to come. No bright lights. No speaking in tongues. No talking like a turkey gobbler. No gibberish. Just a solid, confident feeling that I made a good decision. We're on our way. Now, your experience may be different. I'm telling you my experience. All the experiences in this book were different. But what I give you, the thirsting and the believing and the asking and the yielding is not different. The Holy Spirit lives in you now. He has a strong desire to control you to the point of being envious. And you can make the decision. But don't just get on your knees and say, Lord, I decide and back off tomorrow. The surrender of the life is only the beginning of the surrendered life. Stay surrendered tomorrow and the next day and next week and next year. In five years now, don't back off and say, I'm yours, sink or swim, hip my hell, get fat or die skinny, I'm yours. Stay with it. One more thing. Not only a thirsting and a believing and a asking and a yielding, and I think this is very important. We must want to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the right reason. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit for a good feeling, you may forget it. Nowhere does the Bible say anything about you being filled with the Holy Spirit to feel good. Now, you may feel good, but that's not the purpose of the feeling. If you're seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit where you can get some kind of super-duper heavenly language and talk to God when nobody else can talk to Him, in what you call an unscriptural prayer language, then you want it for the wrong reason. Speaking in tongues is not an evidence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, they did not speak in an unknown tongue. They spoke in a tongue unknown to some who were present. On the day of Pentecost, they were not jabbering and and speaking some kind of heavenly gibberish that only God could understand. They were speaking in the language of the people present on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, 4, said they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, plural, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They only spoke in tongues three times in Acts, Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. And the only time they did it supernaturally, that we know they did it supernaturally, is in Acts 2. It does not say in Acts 10 or in Acts 19, as the Spirit gave them utterance. But in Acts 2, 4, it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This means it was languages they had not learned in school. And languages the Holy Spirit allowed them to speak in order to get the gospel to 3,000 sinners whom God wanted saved. Now, here's what happened on Pentecost. God looks down from heaven, he sees thousands of unsaved people. I know there were 3,000 unsaved because 3,000 got saved. And God in heaven says, I want those sinners saved. And there are my preachers, and they know the gospel, but they don't know the languages of the men who need to hear the gospel. And God says, I want those sinners saved so bad that I'm going to supernaturally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, allow them to speak in the languages of the men present to get the gospel to those sinners. And Acts 2, verse 7 says, And they all marveled and were amazed. 
and said one to another, Are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Now, you don't get any heavenly gibberish out of that. And verse 9 tells you the languages. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and it goes on names, I think, several different languages. Now, what happens? God wants sinners saved so bad that God leaps a language barrier and allows men to speak in languages they did not learn in school to get the gospel so 3,000 sinners could get saved. And that does not put importance on speaking in tongues. Tongues were secondary and incidental. It puts importance on soul winning and shows what extreme God will go to get poor sinners saved. These charismatics who make so much over the tongue, they're like somebody who's been given a million dollars in a brown paper bag. And they dump the million dollars out and get excited about the brown paper bag. Running around say, everybody don't have a brown paper bag. I say, the crazy guy, that paper bag is secondary and incidental. That's the thing I brought the money in. The money's the important thing, not the bag. And the tongue on Pentecost was the thing the message came through. The message, it got 3,000 saved is a big thing. They're still talking about the tongue. I didn't write it. I just preached it. I preached in Atlanta like this, and one lady got mad. She said, I know I have the gift of tongues. I don't care what you say. I said, I never met a woman who didn't have it. Excuse me, ladies, I'm sorry. How idiotic to think that God doesn't understand English. God even understands hillbilly. He understands Georgia. Was and fixing and about to and getting you all. He understands all that stuff. Oh, God, if we could send him to this university and give him some English, we could pray to him, couldn't we? How dumb to think that God understands some kind of a sound that sounds like a turkey in the woods somewhere. I want to go on. I'm running out of time. I've been out of time 20 minutes. Shut up saying amen when I said that. Who was that? You made me lose my fullness. I got so mad at you when you said that. We must want it for the right reason. Why were they filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to get 3,000 sinners saved? Acts 1.8, here it is, plain as day, but you shall receive power as the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll speak in tongues and everybody know you got it. Unauthorized translation. PTL Bible. Seminar Club Bible. No, what it says in your Bible, in your hand, if you got the right Bible. But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can be a witness, so you can get sinners saved, get sinners saved, get sinners saved. That's the whole reason for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, get sinners saved. Luke 1, 15 and 16. John the Baptist, in his mother's womb. For he shall be neither drank wine nor strong drink. 
be great in the sight of the Lord. She neither drink wine nor strong drink, but watch it. Shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And verse 16, and he'll talk in tongues and everybody knows he's got it. Unauthorized translation again. Can you imagine a guy from his mother's womb speaking in tongues? Born at Oral Roberts Hospital. <laughs> Time to get the baby delivered before they ever cut his ambivalent. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, he's got it. He's got it. He's got it. Oh, he's got it. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb, but he didn't talk in tongues. Why don't we stick with the book? Why do we, why do we want to dodge these verses? Luke 1, 15, he shall neither drink wine nor strong drink, but shall be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. What will he do? Verse 16, read it. And many, what does it say? And many shall be turned to righteousness. When you fill the Holy Ghost, you're to get people saved. Moody said, I didn't preach different sermons. The only difference I noticed after my experience on Wall Street, or the fullness of baptism, he called it, was that when I gave the invitation, more people came forward to get saved. If the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner of sin and the rights and judgment to come, the Holy Spirit must have a channel through which to work. We are the channel. You can't win souls without Christ. Remember that last invitation in the Bible? It says, the Spirit and the bride say come. The Spirit doesn't say come apart from the bride, but the Spirit and the bride say come. When I, when I say to a man, will you trust Jesus Christ as Savior? And I say, won't you come to the Savior? Won't you please, sir, come trust Christ? I preached in a church this year. We had over 5,000 present. I gave an invitation. I asked those who were not sure they were saved to raise their hand. They raised them. Over 600 raised their hand, maybe seven, 800. I had them look at me. All of their heads were bowed. I began to look at him one and I said, won't you come trust the Savior? Sir, won't you come trust the Savior? Won't you come let him trust the Savior? We're going to sing. Won't you come trust the Savior? And I began to look and point and say, won't you come trust the Savior? And the bride was saying, come, saying, come, saying, come. But as the bride said, come, the Holy Spirit down in their hearts was saying, go. Go. God uses us. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And 644 people came that morning to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. One service. Were they all really saved? I don't know the difference between being saved and really saved. They all told us they were trusting Christ as Savior. If they were not lying, they're all saved, unless God was lying. Because God said, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and I take that as a fact. Thirsting, believing, asking, yielding, wanting to be filled for the right reason. To get sinners saved. If you want the fullness so you can be a more powerful preacher, and that's the end result, he's not interested in making you a more powerful preacher for you to get up and show off. He's not interested in giving you experience to go around the country and brag about it. He's not interested in giving you something that'll, that'll ruin you. He's interested in giving you something to help you win more people to Christ. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, 
Visit knbbc.com for Christian music you can trust.